0: Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week we're listening to a double episode of two interviews that I recorded. The first is with the author John Markoff on his new book on uh, Stuart Brand called Whole Earth: The Many Lives of Stuart Brand, and the the next one is with the artist Ulysses Jenkins, who has his first retrospective here in Los Angeles at the Hammer Museum right now. Cool. I don't know so much about Stuart Brand. Can you tell me more about what that book is about? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Of course. Uh, Stuart Brand is kind of a man of of many talents. He's done a lot of things, but he was um, kind of like an early adopter of technology and really important in Silicon Valley. And he kind of melded like hippieism and experimentation with drugs and uh, appreciation for the kind of uh, lives of Native Americans and traditions of Native Americans, like storting the land, then also with like a belief in personal computers and information uh, revolution. And so he's kind of like this contradictory figure that I've always been interested in via Whole Earth, the Whole Earth Catalog, which is this magazine that he started publishing in the 60s. And it was just like really influential for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, but was, um, I guess, very important to Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. I have heard of Steve Jobs, (laughs) Okay, so just to (laughs) ground you in that. So yeah, And, and I thought that would pair really well with Ulysses Jenkins, who, also in California, but down here in Los Angeles, became interested in a lot of early technologies, early video conferencing technologies, who really believed in the possibility of, you know, expanded cinema, in the in the words of Gene Youngblood, who was a video artist, and also was like a big proponent of Afrofuturism. Different milieus, but kind of some similar ideas, although Stork Brand, who's still alive, his politics veer in places that I'm like, you know, a little dubious of. He was, a, mm-hmm. he was kind of a big libertarian for a while. And now he's been more controversial as this environmental pragmatist. So that he's, you know, he's into like, he's not against GMOs. He believes in nuclear power. It's basically anything you can do to save the planet, you should do. You can't be too much of an idealist.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I
0: wouldn't, you know, Ulysses, I think his politics are probably more aligned with what I would believe in. But, you know, there's two really interesting people and artists. And I thought that it would be cool to revisit this time. Wow. Well, it sounds like a very interesting duo and interesting show. Let's listen to it. Great. Let's do it. to be speaking with the writer John Markoff today. For nearly three decades, Markoff reported on technology for the New York Times, including the first account ever published of the World Wide Web. In 2013, he and his colleagues were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. He's also the author of five books, including What the Dormouse Said, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry, and Machines of Loving Grace, The Quest for Common Ground Between Humans and Robots. He joins me to discuss his latest book, the biography, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Brand is probably best known as the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, a countercultural magazine he published regularly between 1968 and 72. With influences ranging from the beat poets Brand met as a youth in San Francisco, to his experimentation with LSD, the wisdom of indigenous culture and the philosophy of Buckminster Fuller, Whole Earth catalog featured articles on sustainable living, ecology, and emerging technologies. It offered its readers reviews of products that could make self-sufficiency more feasible. Its famous cover image was that of the Earth as seen from space, a photograph that Brand petitioned NASA to release starting in 1966. Whole Earth would continue to publish off and on until 1998 and was cited by Steve Jobs as being a precursor to Google. As Markov shows in his book, Brand, who's worked as a photographer, a writer, a political advisor, and an environmental activist, among other things, is not an easy person to pin down. His sympathies have ranged from libertarianism to eco-pragmatism, which stresses useful technologies, including nuclear power. Brand is now 83, and Markov's book is based on many years of interviews with him. Welcome to the show, John.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So maybe we could start there at... Store Brand being a bit of a complicated or contradictory figure. I wonder if that's what you think and why you were attracted to writing about him.
1: He is a complicated figure. He's had many incarnations, many careers. He's hard to put in a box. He's, I guess you'd call him an iconoclastic figure. I didn't meet him until the 1980s, but I actually wandered into the truck store, which he had created while he was creating the whole catalog in the 1960s. So I sort of knew him as this interesting figure from very, very early on. And I was interested in writing about him because he's part of the puzzle of Silicon Valley for me. He was there at the creation of Silicon Valley and lots of people have sort of approached him. It feels like the blind man and the elephant sometimes. When I started my my research, I counted over two dozen books that had some kind of biographical description of Stuart, all with their own agenda. They wanted to use his life to illustrate one point or the other. So he's that kind of a figure.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I did get the sense that he represents a lot of what Silicon Valley eventually became. Maybe you could explain just the germ of his life in terms of how it evolved into Silicon Valley. And I guess that also gets me into what else I wanted to ask is just he had this kind of rambling life before Whole Earth Catalog. That's when he finally kind of hit on something that he was really good at and dedicated to, it seems. So maybe you could also explain his path, which is concurrent with the other people around him in Silicon Valley. Sure. First on Silicon
1: Valley, that was one of the surprises for me because there's been a lot of people who've written these arguments sort of that trace the roots of Silicon Valley to Stewart. In 2017, with the election of Donald Trump, the zeitgeist of Silicon Valley kind of flipped. And in the space of a very short period of time, Silicon Valley went from, in the national sort of view, being able to do no wrong to being able to do no right. And there were two books in particular that came out in 2017, one by Franklin Foyer, World Without Mind, and the other by Jonathan Taplin, Move Fast and Break Things. And they both sort of trace the roots of Silicon Valley's worldview or ideology back to Stuart. And I thought that was interesting. And I actually don't agree with that perspective. And I say that based on my research. And, you know, people often ask you when you're doing something, what surprised you in what you were doing? And what surprised me was one of Stewart's journals that I didn't stumble across until 2018. In 2000, both Fred Turner, who wrote a book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, And I, who wrote this book called What the Dormouse Said, which were about the formative period of Silicon Valley in part, we were rushed in to read Stuart's journals because he had just given his papers to Stanford. And I was looking for something very specific, which I didn't find. But when I started my research in 2018, Stuart gave me a journal that he had not given Stanford in 2000. And it was an account over a half-year period of one of his biggest failures, before he started the Whole Life Catalog, he came to Silicon Valley in 1967 for the second time. He, would of course, you have to remember Silicon Valley was not named Silicon Valley then. It didn't become Silicon Valley until 1971. But Stewart came in 1967. And that is really quite remarkable because if you think about it, everybody at that point was going back to the land. My generation was going off and starting communes. And Stewart actually, in the summer of 67, helped some friends start a commune in New Mexico. And then he changed his mind, found commune life kind of dull, and he ended up in Menlo Park, California. And he wrote in his journal, I'm coming here to let my technology happen in this technology boom period. So, one of the things about Stuart Brand is he's had this incredible knack of being at the right place at the right time. And so, how is it that Stuart Brand showed up in Silicon Valley just when Silicon Valley was being born? And when I read that and read also in that journal, that he was much more influenced than I realized by a man by the name of Doug Engelbart. And Engelbart, of course, is the guy who invented hypertext and the mouse and all the stuff that was sort of became modern computing. And so what I realized is that subtitle to Whole Earth, Access to Tools, didn't just come from Buckminster Fuller, which is something that Stuart will tell you, but it also came from Doug Engelbart, who was inventing the universal tool right when Stuart showed up. And so what I walked away from, discovering that journal with is that actually the whole earth catalog is one of the first things to come out of the creation of silicon valley so people have it just backwards the catalog had this huge influence on my generation of american culture i can't tell you how many people i bumped into while i was doing the research who i told i was working on they said oh yeah the whole Earth catalog i ran into the whole Earth catalog and my life went in a different direction It was kind of a, I mean, Steve Jobs called it Google before Google, and I understand that, but I actually think of it as something different. It was a fantasy amplifier for people. It gave them permission to sort of reinvent their lives. And that was Stuart Brand's contribution. And I think that actually grew out of the forces that were shaping that region that became Silicon Valley. So it's a little bit of a different origin story.
0: Maybe you could talk about what was in Whole Earth Catalog, just because the range of things that it published was one of my favorite parts of the book. It's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, so it was basically an index to things that Stuart found interesting, and he was an extremely curious guy. There were sort of seven broad categories that included things like nomadics and housing, shelter, it was called, systems thinking, education. It was all over the map, and it was... Some of it was user-generated. Stuart actively asked people to send in interesting tools, clothing, gadgets, things that would make your life more use- <laughs> usable, useful, easier, things that interested you. There were calculators, computers. There were lots and lots of books on interesting subjects. There are manuals because, you know, his original inspiration for doing this was to help his friends who were on communes. And so what you needed was information. And he had this idea that he would drive a truck around and sell his friends tools and books and things like that. And he took a couple of trips in the summer of 68. And he realized that wasn't going to work because his friends didn't have any money on the commune. They weren't going to buy anything. And so he sort of pivoted and he created this catalog that turned out to resonate with my
0: generation. And just the range of, there were book reviews, right? There were so there was a yes. cultural element and there was also very much an element of self-sufficiency of how to do things, right? Of tools you could get to live off the land.
1: Yeah. It was a how-to manual of how-to manuals.
0: <laughs> right. And I think it it also had this, the famous opening line is...
1: We are as gods and we might as well get good at it. Yes. And it's kind of interesting. One of the things that is about Stuart is that he iterates and that's his pragmatist sort of Point of view, and so there were actually two thousand copies printed originally in two one thousand copy chunks, and in the first thousand copies, it said that passage said, "We are as gods, and we might as well get used to it." And he changed it in the second thousand to, "We are as gods, and might as well get good at it." But he was great at aphorism. There's a section in my book of aphorisms.
0: How does that reflect his ethos and his thinking? I think it's it's notable that he really wanted to exclude politics. So what was he trying to say in, you know, we are as gods?
1: Yeah, so nominally he wanted to exclude politics, but he would violate his own guidelines on occasion. He said that and then he ran a a wonderful political statement on the environment by Gary Snyder very soon. But he did try to stay away from mainstream politics. And Brand is an interesting mix and he's hard to pin down politically. He calls himself a conservative still, but he's a conservative who doesn't like to read the Wall Street Journal because he hates their editorial section. So what kind of a conservative is that? You know, if I had to pin him down, I would put him very close to Jerry Brown's politics. And that was something he evolved into. There was a point where he he was very interested in libertarian ideas. I think that was true. The idea of self-sufficiency was central to him while he was doing the whole catalog. But over the decade after that, he evolved away from that. And after spending time Working with Governor Brown's first administration, he really came away with a sense that there's a value to what he called good government. I wouldn't put him in the libertarian camp today at all.
0: And the whole earth, you know, it's also that he came, it sounded like throughout the book, he really wanted acceptance from his parents. And he's writing them about his acid trips and stuff where you're thinking like, you know, parents aren't going to approve of that. You're never going to get recognition for experimenting with LSD from your family. But there was also this element where he wanted to get that recognition and be a good businessman, it seems. But that must have been conflicted because Whole Earth did incredibly well, right? It started to actually be really profitable. And then he just walked away from it after a while.
1: Stuart's one of those people who I would say he never did anything for money. So first of all, about his parents, he had a very close relationship with his mom. His mom was a bookworm. And they shared this passion for reading. And he had this great respect for her. He had a more nuanced, I think, troubled relationship with his father. His father would get on his case about his drug use, I think, in particular, and some of the things he was doing. And he, he stood up to his father. He said, you know, I'm sorry if you don't respect me, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I think that they ended on a good note, but it was always this kind of, you know, in terms of parent-child relationships, it was nuanced, but I've seen lots worse. I mean, lots, lots worse. And so I think that I think it was a pretty normal relationship with his parents with all the kind of baggage that you get. So first of all, there's the question of Stuart Brand in class, social class. And he clearly, Stuart Brand thought of himself as coming from an upper-class background. He went to Exeter, a prep school. He went to Stanford. And his parents' parents were part of a very upper-class sort of entrepreneurial class in Michigan. But his family itself is a much more nuanced scene. His dad set off to make his own life, make his own way, and settled the family in Rockford, Illinois. He took a job originally in the manufacturing industry and then basically started his own advertising business and ran his own business for his life. I visited their home in Rockford, and by my sort of view of things, it was a very middle-class house. I mean, he was on one street, and one street over on the river, there were the upper-class, what I would call upper-class houses, and Stewart's house it was a multi-story house, but it was not a very flashy kind of place. And so I, I think that he came from a family that was both sort of sidewardly mobile and upwardly mobile at the same time. The family had bought some property up the river, and the dream was to build a house there in the grand style, and that house never got built because education was important to the family and they wanted their kids to go to school and education was expensive. And so it was not pure upper class. And then Stewart himself, he was entrepreneurial. He started things, but he never, the only thing he ever started that was a for-profit, profit-making operation was something called the Global Business Network, where he was one of the co-founders, but he really wasn't a player in that. Everything else was a project or a nonprofit. So he's not a businessman or a capitalist. He's entrepreneurial though, in real sense of the word.
0: What was the reaction and impact of Whole Earth Catalog? You're saying for your generation, it was you know incredibly influential. How did that manifest You know, when Stuart was doing it? What was he hearing from people? How big was it getting?
1: So it was like riding a rocket ship and it really drove him nuts. I mean, it was this success disaster. You know, he sort of invented this idea of desktop publishing. Desktop publishing really wasn't a thing when he started in 1968 and bought an advanced IBM Selectric typewriter to do the typesetting. And they were making it up as they went along. He had this idea of a catalog, and it just sort of resonated. I mean, first, he didn't even know how to put it in bookstores. They were sending it out by mail and selling subscriptions, and they were really making it up as they went along. And it touched a nerve. And so ultimately, in those first three years, because, you know, he, after one year, he decided to close it down in three years. He immediately decided he didn't want to be tied to this thing that he'd created that was becoming a monster, literally. I mean, it was like almost 500 pages by the time he had gotten to the third year. And it was not only a bestseller, but it won the National Book Award in 1972, the year that that he shut it down. So they sold ultimately 3 million copies in those three years. And what that meant is it was in many, many households in America. And so it wasn't just the 3 million people. It was one of those things that sat around in the house and everybody looked at it all the time. And it sort of, it really infiltrated the culture, not just back to the land. I mean, it affected a lot of people who were, you know, people in urban areas who were trying to reinvent their lives or who stumbled across something in the catalog and it sort of gave them permission to do something new in life.
0: What do you make of the critique that you write about that whole earth is identified as part of the California ideology and critiqued as .com neoliberalism? I can see why someone would say that, but at the same time, it seems so contradictory because it was this Bible of ecology, looking at the earth from far away, seeing how small we were, seeing how much we were all supposed to be unified. I mean, it does seem to be both things, but how would you defend that?
1: Yeah, the first of all, that critique, there certainly is a neoliberal component to Silicon Valley, but I think where people make a mistake about trying to understand Silicon Valley is there is no monolithic Silicon Valley. As a matter of fact, I believe that the thing that makes Silicon Valley what it is, is it's multiculturalism. And the Whole Earth Catalog certainly represents a certain cultural thread, but it's not even that simple. You know, I think Jonathan Taplin in Move Fast and Break Things gets it right. Brand, they call him a utopian. I think Stuart would quarrel with that. He winces at the term utopian and he sees himself as a pragmatist. But he did at the very beginning advocate sort of breaking away from the mainstream culture. He basically defined that thread of sort of inventing your life and walking away from middle-class America. But what I think Taplin does that is right is he distinguishes those ideas that were in the whole earth catalog that spoke to this counterculture from a second wave in Silicon Valley that was known as the PayPal mafia. People like Peter Thiel and people who started PayPal who were really libertarians. The libertarian stuff in that kind of capitalist sense came later. To my mind, the archetypical model of Silicon Valley, which I think captures a lot of the whole earth thought, was Apple Computer. Apple Computer was started by one guy Steve Wozniak, who just wanted to build a computer to share with his friends at the Homebrew Computer Club, had no more ambitions than that. And another guy, I mean, he was a hacker in that traditional sense of the word, and another guy, Steve Jobs, who understood there was a market there. And I think at a certain point, that was the Silicon Valley that was most closely connected to some of the ideas in the catalog.
0: I noticed that it's a topic you've gone back to a number of times in your writing, which is like, yeah, these early days of Silicon Valley, this connection to a much larger set of ideals and people and artists and poets, you know, the 60s counterculture connection. I wonder why that feels like fertile ground for you, if part of it is almost speculative, this idea that this could have been a different revolution than the one that we've got.
1: Absolutely. I mean, so first of all, Personally, that's of interest to me because I grew up here. I literally grew up in Palo Alto, went to school here, grew up playing in the Hewlett's household. I've watched Silicon Valley emerge. And then actually, I went away for a decade from 67 to 77. So while it was happening, I was gone. And so I wrote this earlier book called What the Dormouse Said that was trying, it was kind of an anti-autobiography, what happened while I was gone. That led to personal computing and the modern internet, trying to understand I've never been a technological determinist. I don't think technologies come out of a vacuum or that you happen by turning a crank. It happens certain places and certain times for certain reasons. And I was trying to understand that. And one of my fascinations with Stuart is he's so much a part of that time and that place. And you know, also whatever it is that's special about Silicon Valley is something it seems possible that could have a beginning and an end. And so you have to understand what it is lest you lose it and it goes away. And the multiculturalism of the Valley, I think is a big part of it. It was a magnet for several decades for the best and the brightest. They would come to Silicon Valley. And I think it's possible that we could change our laws, do things to actually break that cycle.
0: And in terms of, you know, what Stuart Brand then went on to do after Whole Earth, he really evolved into more of a journalist and writer, right, in the last few uh, Yes,
1: that was his next step. Yeah, he tried to become a journalist. He freelanced some, he wrote a book, or he wrote some articles that became a book. And then he decided to become a magazine editor. And he set up this quirky, kind of iconoclastic publication called Coevolution Quarterly, which turned out to be pretty much of an extension of the original Whole Earth catalog. It had many of the same qualities, and in fact, they produced more catalogs. And then he got kind of distracted at one point with the personal computer industry. He tried to create something called the Whole Earth Software Catalog. That was not a success. But it turned him into a manager. And then he created something called The Well, which was an early online conferencing system. It's an idea that I saw in his notes in the late 60s. So he thought about it early on. And he created The Well as this kind of special place. And he actually, you know, came to feel The Well was one of his failures because he takes pride in creating institutions that are sustainable. And he literally got driven out of The Well after about six years by a very angry well-user base that sort of focused their dissatisfaction on him, and he walked away from it feeling like he'd failed. And this was interesting. Stuart remains a technological optimist, and yet he saw many of the things that are true about social media today that have led it to be such a threat to democracy. And yet, even though he walked away personally, he didn't sort of become a messenger of that you know potential problem, which is interesting.
0: Where did he rest with his views on ecology and environmentalism now? Where is he, you know, now that he's in his 80s and he's seen just how real and scary climate change is, what does he think now?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, it's tough to write a biography about a guy who's still super active. He hasn't slowed down. So Brand has been consistent in some ways. I originally, once upon a time, thought of him as a Zelig-like character. And I decided Zelig's not the best term because Zeligs are kind of shapeshifters. And Stuart took this Outdoor Life magazine pledge as an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. And he's held to that sort of commitment to protecting the nation's resources since then. So he was always conservationist, not a preservationist. And that distinction between kind of a Sierra Club, don't touch nature, as versus a kind of, we have responsibility for caring for this environment, and we're involved in it, and we're part of it. And that's been his perspective. And he famously broke with, so he was instrumental in the creation of the environmental movement in the early 70s, late 60s and early 70s. And then he famously broke with it in publishing this book, Polar Discipline and Eco-Pragmatist Manifesto initially in 2007, where he endorsed nuclear power and GMO food and dense cities and geoengineering. And that really angered a lot of the traditional environmental movement, who's you know very, there are people who are anti-GMO, there are people who are anti-nuclear, they're anti-geoengineering. And he ruffled a lot of feathers, which I think was his intention. But he still sees himself as very pro-environment and trying to you know save the earth, if you will.
0: John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Fun talking. That was John Markoff. His new book is Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with John Markoff, author of Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. We now turn to our conversation with artist Ulysses Jenkins. I'm thrilled to be speaking with the artist Ulysses Jenkins today. Jenkins' career spans five decades. He's known especially for his pioneering video and performance art, which often explores questions of race, multiculturalism, ritual, representation, and technology. Born in Los Angeles in 1946, Jenkins has been integral to the artistic evolution of the city, collaborating and forming collectives with many other important artists, including Senga Nagudi, Maren Hassinger, David Hammons, Nancy Buchanan, Herrick Gamboa Jr., Mae Sun, and Kit Galloway and Sherry Rabinowitz. He's a recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and prizes from the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame, among other honors. And his work has been included in numerous exhibitions at institutions such as the Whitney Museum of Art, the Hammer Museum and the Getty Center. Currently, he's an associate professor in the Claire Trevor School of the Arts and an affiliate professor in the African-American Studies program at the University of California, Irvine. He joins me on the occasion of his first and long overdue retrospective, Without Your Interpretation, curated by Aaron Cristoval and Meg Onley, which is on view at the Hammer Museum here in Los Angeles until May 15th. Thanks so much for being here, Ulysses. Hello. Hi. Thank you. So I, I've read a statement that you wrote where you described your work as intermedia and you write, that's an art form that uses and manipulates all available forms to express the desired artistic expression. And, and you have worked just across a, a real range of media and you started as a muralist and a painter. I wondered if you could describe a little bit how you got interested in using video and the way that you've used it, incorporated performance as your career has evolved.
2: Well, the first and foremost thing about my uh, work in, in terms of media, I had come to this reality as a painter, first of all, uh, in studying the history of art, that the African-American or African uh, cultures, let's put it this way, the Western uh, art history, we were always some, some in some kind of subservient uh, position. And I thought that it would be really good to try to explore that, especially as as I went into graduate school, the whole, I, I needed a direction, actually. And uh, before I uh, actually came to graduate school, I had been introduced to video <clears throat> while I was painting my first mural in Venice on the boardwalk on Venice at the... The corner of Rose and Ocean uh, Ocean Park Walk, but um, from that particular w- time, I was introduced to the workshop by a guy named Michael Zingali. And uh, at first, I thought, I don't know if I how 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 I'm going to integrate that into what I was doing as an artist. But I was very interested in independent cinema, which was beginning to flourish, uh, two films in particular, uh, Easy Rider and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. To that extent, I thought, well, you know, you could actually create an al- alternative voice. And uh, so I went to this video workshop and got enthralled by it, but in which we used to call the Video Jones. And then the Video Jones primarily was something that you have this instrument that you'd never had before. Remember, I mean, most people don't appreciate what it was like to actually be able to videotape something. If you didn't like it, you could erase it, and then you could also play it back and re-record. That phenomena in itself was enthralling. So we went from taking that that workshop and i realized at the time that there was the it was the summer and the watch festival was occurring and on tv they kept saying don't go because your life would be in peril and i thought i've been to the watch festival it's a fun event why are they saying that so we go to the festival and we take a porter pack that was the title or the name of the uh, equipment and so we got a lot of interesting interviews, and of course, I got one of the at the time I think one of the few uh, recordings of the band called War. And I think when the when the crowd goes completely insane when they were singing this lyric, "Police and their justice, they're laughing while they're bust us." I mean, it was unbelievable. So, to that extent you saw the whole notion of the sociopolitical political feelings that were also occurring during those during that time uh, by by which also that uh, documentation is called the remnants of the watch festival is playing in the uh exhibition
0: well let me ask you about that movie so that was your, your or that video that was your your first video you made right and right. i think and I think it's um, it's a it's an amazing document, you know, not only for just you being there, but then also because it really does have this air of ambivalence. You talk to this one guy who's very critical of what's happened to the festival and how it's been co-opted by corporations. And uh, the way it's changed over time. So it's not just like this feel-good story of uh, the Watts Festival, you know, in the ashes of the Watts Riots. There's, there's a lot of criticality in that piece that kind of makes it a little bit more complicated, I would say.
2: Well, the guy that you're talking about, Cecil Ferguson, he, is one of, he was one of the uh, actual uh, participants of the, uh, for the festival in terms of a community member. which he also states in the documentation. So to that extent, the whole reality that we capture in that some of the points that you're pointing out, most people have not understood how events created by the African-American community were staging grounds for police training. In that context, they would send out On a a lot of extents, I could be wrong when I say this, but it seemed like they were sending out all their rookie officers to learn how to control not only crowd control, but ethnic crowd control in that sense. Because there were a lot of uh, unfortunate events that would occur because of the misunderstandings which we still have unfortunately to this day the misunderstandings of law enforcement regarding people of color.
0: So that that video is um more documentary style but later you know you started to appear in your own work and you started performing and I wonder was that like a an easy transition for you to make? Were you a natural performer? Were you shy? <laughs> because you really put yourself out there in these uh, videos from the late 70s. You know, it it seems really brave. And I wonder as from going someone who is behind the camera to them being in front of it, what was that like for you?
2: Well, you know, I have to give uh, some some credit to a uh, very good friend of mine, Celia Shapiro, who asked me, would I take some acting classes? And I think it was Martin Landau had, a, had an acting class. So I, w- I was going to those before I did two zone transfer. And so then the, the whole idea of actually doing performance itself came out of the courses that I were taking at Otis Art Institute in my grad, grad school. So this was my first year's grad school project that is still living. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Uh, But at the same time, it's the same concepts that I was pursuing. Actually, what happened, I'll just backtrack a bit. Before I got to grad school, I was taking this class on black film at Santa Monica College. And I actually uh, saw the history of blacks in film. And that spurred me to put together the notions that I was interested in as it regards to uh, the Black image in uh, Western culture and in arts in particular. So I saw that in, in these films that Blacks were, and especially the early ones, we were either servants, servitude was the characterization that we had to perform. So I said, there's got to be a way to change this up. And since video at that time was a brand new medium, especially the port a usage of video, I thought, well, possibly I could change it. So that the title, if you're obviously in the community where you have to actually ride the bus, going from one side of town to the other, and particularly ethnically, you needed a two-zone transfer. And I make that point by the way that the the video begins. I get on the bus and I ask for a two-zone transfer, but yet I go into this dream state while I'm sitting on the bus, which was my inference to surrealism. The Interesting, the, the question you asked, because surrealism is, I felt, where, especially at that time, the ethnic communities resided. That was the that was the other side of the zone uh, as I saw it.
0: Well, that's another one where, right, it seems like this reckoning with kind of the history of of black representation in, in popular media. Um, and then famously in that video, you know, you're holding a sledgehammer um, and there's these towers of televisions. And I've read a lot of questioning about why in the end of the video you don't like just smack the smack the heck out of those TVs why why you don't end up destroying you know symbolically destroying kind of this awful lineage of, of representation um, and I, I'd love to hear you talk about that decision
2: well I answered that question in video when I said they won't let me <laughs> I mean that's you know you know it's interesting when you when you're questioning this part of the of the of the uh video from the point of view that stereotypes is what I'm trying to address and the fact that you still have young people getting into the media and they replicate these stereotypes I mean I wish they would read Donald Boyle's book about uh Black images in the media, because I really got a lot from reading his books because, I mean, first and foremost, Birth of a Nation by Griffith is an encyclopedia of the stereotypes that were infused about representation of African-Americans in the media. I mean, the first time I saw that film, I, I, I couldn't watch the whole thing. I ran out of the theater because I, I was hurt by the fact that you would have someone who was that invested in making those stereotypes about African-Americans. And as you study more, if you're interested in that time period, the whole notion of reconstruction, which he represents in his film, unfortunately, still continues. I mean, as I found out when I went to college in the South, people were still living those particular Jim Crow codes in society, which some people still want to have today. But because people are poor students of history is why you have this idiot killing all these people right now in ukraine
0: it seems like what the promise of you know these new technologies that were just emerging when you were starting making video were were that they could be kind of this alternative media source that was not um popular that was very personal for a lot of people but yet would have very far far reaching qualities because of these emerging technologies. And that's this whole other strain of your work, like using electronic media, using video phones, um, using computer generated imagery, kind of like setting up this alternative channel away from the the one that, you know, was popular at the time, film and television. So I I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. And just I know you studied with Gene Youngblood, the media theorist at Otis briefly and even made a video about him. Like, what kind of influence did he have on you, and what were your hopes for these new technologies that you're using in your in your videos, like uh, that I mentioned?
2: It kind of goes back to what uh, I was emphasizing in our previous conversation. I come from the generation that came with the invention of television, and to that extent, you see brought forward when we eventually end up with Star Trek, you know, the whole notion of us being able to travel in space and all those things, Uh, the future technologies that they emphasize. I mean, the fact that you actually, if you look at Star Trek today and you see that they're using little communication devices, we're doing that now. And, large screen projections to actually look at television or look at the media. That's the kind of thing that I think, which we actually experienced when we were involved with the Electronic Cafe. The fact that, I I would just say this, in the cafe that I worked at, which was called the Gumbo House in Lemur Park, when the kids came into the restaurant, They ran to the technology. The adults ran away. Why? The fear of technology. And that fear of technology still exists in a lot of homes, a lot of people's experiences, because it asks you a question in regards to your own intellectual, when we talked about that problem (laughs) in the writing. When you go into, let's say, a a department store and you see the uh, technical equipment, who do you run to? You need somebody to help you with that technology. So the whole fear of technology is one of the attributes of the future. You see, we we were playing with the future. So when you say, you know, having taken classes with Gene Youngblood and the other work that I ended up doing, we're trying to push. How do we push this thing, not further than it was at the time, but at least make it present, you see? And in that, in that context, the presence of our, I will say our visual and practical applications of the technology, for a lot of people, was it was fearful.
0: And how do you feel? I, I guess I'm it's always a question of mine with people who were at the forefront of this new technology, um where so much of it has been integrated now today and it's very commonplace. And it doesn't seem so radical anymore. And maybe it's and it's been co-opted and kind of infused with some of the same issues that popular media had. These medias that seem so new at the time have just now been adopted and don't have that same maybe have that same alternative feel anymore? Or is that just par for the course when something becomes, you know, regular? On a certain level, what
2: you're describing is had a lot to do with some of the conversations that I was having with Kit and Sherry. The fact that what we were doing under, this, under the context of the, the applications and procedures that we were doing, today, it's like you're saying, it's been corporatized. And we used to talk about how that once the corporations get control over it, that means they have control of your communications, you see. And the thing that we were trying to do was to express what we could do with our freedom. This whole notion, I mean, that's what they're fighting, I'm going back to that, but that's what they're fighting for in Ukraine, is their freedom. And we are controlled, even though people... May or may not understand being controlled. Our whole lives are involved in the integration of technology. If you go back to that, those those wonderful cartoons that talked about how the wheel was the beginning of human beings' use of a technical device to perpetuate going forward. So that wheel is now turned into the Zoom, okay? (laughs) That's kind of how I can like put it together on on a whole nother level. But, you know, I hope I'm answering your question because I'm going in and out of where you have been indicating. But we had this discussion about what will happen when the corporations take a hold of this technology. And now we see it because the thing that we had, the freedom, I was, that's what my point I was trying to raise, is that we could say anything, create anything. The fact that we can only use these instruments that we use today, back in those days, because we were just inventing a certain processing, if you see any of the documentation, not only mine, but especially Kit and Sherry's Electronic Cafe, They were doing all kinds of stuff that right now they're having these multiple windows, which I saw the other day, which is so incredible, of an orchestra playing the Ukrainian uh, music. And they had all these windows with all the musicians playing that music together. Kid and Sherry were doing that. Right. And those concepts, what I'm trying to point to, there's a lot that we are now recognizing the validity, and it's really sad that it took a pandemic to force us into using this technology.
0: You know, something else that's so beautiful about your work is that, right? There's this stress on, you know, these technological innovations, but at the same time, um, a lot of the videos are rooted in ritual. And a lot of the people you collaborated with too, like Sangan Gudi and Marin Hassinger, also were really interested in, in ritual. Um, you even called yourself like a, a video griot, I think. And and so I'm wondering if you could talk about that aspect of your work. You know, I mean, of course it makes sense from a performance art aspect that ritual and performance art would have a lot to say to each other, but what kind of other models were you thinking of, or why was it important for you to structure? these performances as rituals?
2: Okay, well, I will first and foremost give uh, my acknowledgement of uh, the notions of ritual from classes that I had taken with Betty Saar at Otis. And to that extent, what I learned and realized from uh, Betty Saar's courses and course of instruction is that as an African-American, we have a whole other way in which to express ourselves that comes from our indigenous backgrounds. And to that extent, there's a lot to be learned uh, and still to be learned in that aspect. I actually have uh, taken uh, trips to Brazil and that's where I saw the actual practice of African religions. Condomble, and I went down there with this dance company, Veve Brazil, here in L.A., that really was enlightening for me, to be honest with you, to see the the original African religions being practiced, which they forbid here in America. They they wouldn't allow you to do any of that kind of thing at all. Uh, If you see the film Carmen Jones, you see Dorothy Dandridge, and one part of the film where she uh, she takes her then partner in the film to her home and walks into a room and there's this outlay of artifacts that are ritualized in which she has to tell him, you know, this is taboo. This notion of tabooism, you see, uh, is, has been embedded into the African-American uh, uh, heritage of the past, which we've been trying to, as artists in particular, musicians have really gone beyond that, which, which leads me into how I got into music. Uh, the, the ability to express that indigeneity, and it was... It's 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 fabulous. I mean, uh, I tend to think it's fabulous, and so in that sense, it helped me to recognize when you go back to that point that you were asking me about how I got into two zone. After I did two zone, I realized in from a class that I was taking at Otis again, where the Caucasian students were telling me, you ain't gonna go nowhere with that black shit. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. You you didn't tell me something like that. And I said, well, you just wait and see to myself. And uh, that's also from from those acting classes, I come to recognize that I needed a character that I could call my own. And that came from my background. Thus comes the griot. And if you know anything about the griot and African culture, they sing the history of the cultured, perform a particular kind of performance that actually exemplifies the message that they're bringing. Thus begets my character as a griot. Integrating that with the medium of video had been, for the most part, my whole uh, legend of, of my work, as you are asking me about it.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah, I can. That's a. I can definitely see that.
2: Go to the show; you'll see it too.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I saw it at the show. Yeah, and and uh, I should also mention that some of your works are available on Criterion Collection as well, right? And
2: right, 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 right.
0: Um. I wanted to ask, I don't know if it's just nostalgia for a time that I never experienced because I wasn't around, but um, even just your work in public access, opening that up a lot to artists of the time, um, can you maybe just talk about kind of the scene and um, was it happening in part, you know, for lack of institutional structures that, that could bring people together? Was it, you know, what how did these collectives form and what was it like to be a part of so many and just be around so many people who were artists and working together? It seems very fertile and amazing.
2: Well, uh, thank you for that question. And The thing about what you just uh, described, uh, I'll start with uh, my studio, Other Visions. At a certain point, and, of course, from the context of uh, you mentioning Studio Z, I'm, I was brought into uh, Studio Z by David Hammons. We became good friends. Uh, he, he made a visit to me uh, one day as I was painting murals in Venice and uh, surprised me that he was in my home. Uh, and I said, uh, what do you? how did you Where did you come from? Sort of thing. And uh, I walked in and he goes, "I'm David Hammonds. And I'm going to myself, "You're David Hammonds, I've heard of you." And he said to me, "I've heard of you. And that's after I had painted my first mural on the boardwalk. From that point on, he took me to his studio which I didn't know at the time, was the studio of Studio Z. And Studio Z, they did a lot of uh, cultural events and uh, just different uh, activities there that were represented as Studio Z. So from that point onward, he and I were in contact with each other. But then later on, after I after he had left, you see the... Uh, the video that's in the show with David Hammond called King David. He, uh, that was, that was his last day as an artist in LA. He was moving to New York and he wanted me to actually do that video with him so that he'd have a document about the work that he was doing at that time and, uh, how he was leaving that as a reference point. In other words, what I was also interested in doing, which moves along to when I eventually create Other Vision Studio, there are a lot of underrepresented African-American artists that I thought, if I can document their work or get their work represented, which I was able to do in uh, the Watts Festival tape, actually, in the exhibition that's in that video, then we can at least have some record of our existence and our work and our being. So to that extent, that's how that all began. So that when I had won an an NEA award for two zone transfer, and I took the funding from that to create the studio that I called Other Visions, And so, in the purposefulness of that studio, you see the collaborations that I made and reached out towards other other artists, which you see in that video with Rudy Perez and uh, Sanganagudi and Marin and Mason and Chrono. It all evolves into the video that's next to it, which is the title of the show, Without Your Interpretation wherein the guitarist in that video, Michael Delgado, he really helped make that video and that performance come to life because I created it with him and the band that he was in at the time, Life in the Park. And so the, the, as you see in the credits, Life in the Park with Debris, that's how the, that's how the beginnings of Other Visions began. So the one thing I'm guess I'm trying to make a make I'll make a point of, as artists of color, we did not necessarily have the input from institutions. You mentioned uh, the circumstances of the uh, the videos I did on cable access. Back in those days, access to technology was very difficult. In particular, if you're working with the portapack, in which I was. And uh, that's why when you look at the dates on the Watts Festival, you have the original dates, but you also have the dates when I finally got a chance to edit that video, which was when I was working, uh, started working at UCSD. So my relationship to the educational institutions has always been about access. So technology access is something that I think people of color have always had to try to be on the wane uh, just because we aren't just born into a, a, a place where we get those those kinds of uh, opportunities. I mean, that's that's the whole thing that I try to you know, teach to my students is the fact that how can you create opportunities for yourself. Do you see them on the horizon? and can you go to them? that's that's sort of a a way of looking at my career.
0: Well, yeah, I guess that's maybe maybe to close, I wanted to ask you, you know, right, as someone who's had such a long career and probably had times where um, the support from institutions or otherwise wasn't there in quite the robust way it finally is now, you know, uh, how did you how did you keep going at times where you feel like, oh, like I've made this important work. I, I can tell it's good. Why isn't it getting shown at, at a certain level? Why isn't it getting recognized at a certain level? I, I just could imagine that would be so difficult. Um, what did you do to keep yourself going in those times?
2: Well, let's just say, I mean, to a certain degree, if, 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 if you read the uh, catalog or any of the other information that Aaron uh, Cristobal and Meg Oney had written about, they in one of their uh, essays, they, they say how they were surprised how this work has been ignored. Here's the point. I'm glad you asked that question again. When video started out as a medium, the thing that they were not necessarily interested in was an African-American point of view, OK? This new medium was supposed to be about the future. And as you've actually recognized, to a certain degree, the future initially w- did not have any African-Americans in it. I mean, on in, in terms of the media itself, it took Star Trek to put an African-American woman in their casting to actually, and oh, let me say also an Asian guy, okay? It took those two characters to actually get what you now see with NASA, actually putting people of color into the space program. But at the same time, getting us into the media, to whatever degree that you can actually that you can actually see us in the productions and control of our own productions i mean to a certain degree i would say this black panther really just projected a whole notion of afrofuturism and i have been recognized these days as someone who was involved in what is now being called the uh, Afrofuturist projection and which a lot of young African-American artists are pursuing. So to that extent, I feel good about that. And at the same time, I hope people recognize what I said earlier about not recreating those stereotypes. Can you create a new kind of characterization for yourselves for the future that's what's needed
0: um, well i think that's a really a beautiful place to end and ulysses jenkins thanks so much for talking with me today
2: yeah well thank you kate uh, i'm, I'm uh, hoping that we might uh, talk again in the future
0: me too yeah um that was ulysses jenkins his first retrospective is up at the hammer museum right now it's called without your interpretation Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Bladen.